This week on Our Thing. And a guy walked up and he ripped all the gold chains right off her necks and said, get out of here. That was it. And I was like, we just got rolled by the cops. Detroit's own Gary Allison nails it with a fresh take on a classic genre. Uh, Carol Vanette also came to see the show in the 60s. She came up and said, give me a call. She gave me her number. And guess what? I never called her. And the incredible Cy Young entertains us with his new book series and his life in the golden age of entertainment. Stay tuned for the most entertaining hour in radio. This is Our Thing with everyone's favorite ex-gangster, Gunner, Gunner, Gunner. What's up? Welcome back to Our Thing on 1010 The King. I'm joined by my partner in crime, Bill Crooks from Partners in Crime Podcast. Make sure to check out his podcast wherever podcasts are consumed. He's awesome. That's all I got to say. This guy's a G on that tip on the podcast. So, Bill, we are in the middle of a blizzard here in northern Michigan. We got about a foot. Oh, man. Oh, it's ugly, bro. Foot and a half. Um, by the way, we got some great guests coming on, as always, tonight. A couple of great authors. Both of them involve private investigators. One of them takes place in Detroit. It starts in Detroit, which is pretty cool. The main character. It's a really interesting book uh, written by a really interesting dude. I like that. But it made me think about the whole process. And they're both working on screenplays or scripts for television slash movie, whatever. But it made me think about everything that I got going on right now. And I'm involved in a TV project, also a documentary. In fact, just today I was talking to the director about the documentary and my producer like just moments ago. Well, the documentary, I can say, it's about me, about my life, my love story with my wife, my redemption, books, all that. But there's so much more to it because I had a really messed up childhood, the environment I was in as a young kid and in my teens. And of course, I got involved in a lot of crime, you know, in organized crime, some more than others. I was around some mobsters. That's not really the meat of the story, but it's part of the story. It kind of chronicles my life spiraling out of control into my 20s until it kind of crescendos with a full-blown drug habit, crime spree, prison. Then I turn my life over to God. I start writing novels. And anyways, the scripted TV series, I can't really talk about that. But I will say this. We were working on the scripted TV series with the producer, brought it to actor Armando Sante, Golden Globe winning, Emmy Award winning actor. We shared the story. He really liked it. He wanted to play the role and direct, possibly. He might direct or co-direct. So Armand says, I have a bunch of friends in the business. He's been in Hollywood for 50 years. This guy, you know, he's done like 200 movies. And he he says, I'm going to approach a top tier screenwriter to write the script. He said, basically, he said, the only way I'm going to do this is the script is gold. The story's great. Got a great story, but... It all comes down to whoever writes a script. It has to be gold. That's the only way I'm going to attach my name. The only way I'm going to do this. So he suggested a couple of screenwriters that are, you know, B-list, maybe even an A-list going after them. But they're expensive. Screenwriters are very expensive. You know, an A-list screenwriter is about $100,000. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, they knock a script out in in uh, maybe six weeks. You know, that's a lot of money, $100,000. Sure. But there's lower level ones, B-list ones, maybe $30,000, $40,000. So they're telling me this and I'm on a Zoom call with the, all these guys and I'm like, why wouldn't I write the script? Like, I'm a, I'm a writer. And they're like, well, it's, you know, you're talking about writing a totally different format from a novel. You write novels. I'm like, yeah, but I'm a writer. And the formula for a great story is always the same. You know, I'm just translating words now into a picture rather than a picture in the mind. It's a picture on the screen. So I got to write it with the intention of, hey, my words are going to translate to a picture on the screen. Well, I already write that way with the intention of translating my word to a picture in the reader's mind. So I just kind of alter it. And anyways, they thought it was kind of crazy, but they said, you know, I almost insisted they give me a shot. They're kind of like, sure, pal. 
So I spend 17 days and I write the pilot and the first two episodes. And then I send it to both of them. I'm pretty sure it's decent. You know, learning the format of a script is different. I had to get the software. They call it like this final draft. I used a different one that was a little more intuitive for me, but it's pretty easy. I adapt to it pretty quickly. And so I hit them up. I send it to them. I say, check it out, read it. Then let's have a Zoom call. So what we do, they read it. A Zoom. So we have a Zoom, and Armando Sante reads this. He's looking at the script in front of him, and he says, man, in all my years in this business, I've only known two or three writers on your level, Gunner. That's a hell of a compliment coming yeah. from him, right? And I said, thank you, thank you. He's like, we don't need an A-list screenwriter. We got to write. This is a good script. It's not perfect. It can be polished. There's some things that you have here that won't translate to the screen well, or you just can't do it because it's too expensive or it's too whatever, too much involved. He's like, and you got to learn how to edit those parts out and change things or whatever. But overall, you know, it's a great script. It's a great starting place, whatever. So now what do we do now? Yeah, and that was like the first trap. There's been many revisions. Since yeah, that. yeah, and there will be many more, I'm sure, still, too. You know, they're talking about raising $4.7 million for this pilot. And the producer himself is willing to put up a million of his own money. And then uh, if the scripted TV series is successful and sold, then they're going to be aware of my books. And then, you know, Bill, if they read my books, it's game over. Oh, wise guy, eh? Okay, so you know what that means. Another edition of Street Beats with Bill Crooks reports on the latest underworld news, crime gossip, and gangster stuff. Not that we glamorize or glorify. We just report on it. Most of the time, it's not good. But what do you got, Bill? I got some not good. The Associated Press is all abuzz the last couple of days. Now, we all know countries like Colombia and Mexico have been dealing with dangerous cartels for decades. Occasionally, taking down drug lords is their strategy for combating organized crime. As we point out on numerous occasions, the strategy merely creates a vacuum and allows lower criminals with higher aspirations to fill the gaps. The daunting task at hand seems to be weeding out systematic corruption in the respective countries between the criminals, the politicians, and frankly, law enforcement. Now, let's talk Ecuador. Their leader, President Daniel Noboa, has some strong opinions on how this should be dealt with. He issued a decree saying his country was, quote, in an internal armed conflict. He designated 20 drug trafficking gangs as terrorist groups. And further, he gave the military authorization to, quote, neutralize within the bounds of international humanitarian law, of course. <laughs> Basically, he is officially at war with organized crime. Here's a quote. We are fighting against terrorist groups made up of more than 20,000 people. He says they wanted to be named as organized crime groups, but they are terrorists. He even went as far as to warn that judges, prosecutors and officials who collaborate will be considered part of a terrorist network. So what was the cartel response? Get this. A group wielding explosives and guns stormed a television network in the city of Guayaquil, flashed across the televisions of Ecuadorians for 15 minutes on Tuesday. It was cartel members threatening and assaulting employees of the TC television network. I saw this, Gunner. Like uh, screenshots and stuff. Yeah. You're talking about your local news yeah. anchor getting assaulted, beat down by a guy with a mask and a, and a rifle. On live TV. Yeah, they took over the station. They 
said, quote, we are on air so you know that you cannot mess with the mafia. Okay, that was one of the assailants. He was heard to say on live TV, basically a warning to the government and law enforcement alike. Now, no one was killed and eventually 13 suspects were arrested, but the violent broadcast stunned much of the region and elicited a wide raging government response. The following day, schools and stores were shuttered, many people stayed home, and soldiers roamed the streets of Ecuador's biggest cities. Naboa's resolve was welcome to many Ecuadorians who have watched their nation descend into chaos. They seem to be following El Salvador's model, which we've covered a lot, which has garnered international attention for its extreme anti-crime tactics. We did a story a long time ago where they're actually desecrating the graves of gang members and things like that, yeah. just to show the disrespect that they're going to get if they're in a gang. Gang. So in the end, of course, we'll have to see how this shakes out. But for now, that's your street beats. Gonna be pretty scary and wild to be uh, one of those countries where that type of bold, brazen, brash criminal. So I'm saying you're watching the news and all right. of a sudden here come the gang guys. Yeah. They punch an anchor, man. They you know, start giving their own message. So they always have some hot chick as their weather anchor. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I know they a lot of them in South America, the yeah, weather girls exactly. are something. All the weather yeah. girls in South America are just big buxom, you know, and so all the guys tune in. They're like, hey, I'm going to watch <laughs> Uh, and his wife's like, it's been the same weather for the last 15 years. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks, Bill, for Street Beats. For now, we got to take a quick commercial, and we'll be right back. It's our thing. Hey, have you checked out Our Thing Apparel? It's the original gangster clothing brand that lets you represent where you live, featuring T-shirts, hoodies, vintage tracksuits, and more. Our Thing Apparel allows you to customize your clothing for your city or state. And now we're proud to launch our Atlanta line of urban casual wear. Check out OurThingApparel.com and use the promo code 1010 when checking out to get 10% off your total order. Make our thing your thing. What's up, Atlanta? It's Bill Crooks from Our Thing Radio Show. Gunner and I love showcasing creative talent regardless of the medium. That's why we're really excited about Atlanta Stitchworks Custom Upholstery. It's Georgia's premier custom shop for all your interior needs. Serving you with 16 years of experience and quality, they truly are second to none. My good friend Fernando Moreno and team will help you bring your dreams and ideas to reality. They specialize in handmade interiors for hot rods, lowriders, cars, trucks, baggers, choppers, and of course, marines. They'll even handle your audio and window tinting. Any material, any design, anything you want. Tailor-made for you at Atlanta Stitchworks. For free estimates, please call 404-503-3949. 404-503-3949. That's 404-503-3949. Or if you're shy, just email atlantastitchworks at gmail.com. They'll take great care of you. Just tell them Bill and Gunner sent you. What's up? Welcome back to Our Thing on 1010 The King. Now I'd like to welcome to the show, D.W. Allison, a really interesting author of a really interesting series of books. This one particularly is going to hit home with me and Bill, partly because it takes place in the beginning in my hometown of Detroit and also in Key West, Florida, where Bill spent a lot of time partying his younger years away. He probably doesn't remember most of them, but he, he was down there. <laughs> So, Gary, before we get into your books and the story behind it, I want to hear about you. Tell me a little about yourself, where you're from, where you grew up, 
And then what led you down this choice to write a book? Because it's a lot of work to write a book. It's a lot of dedication. There's a lot of commitment involved. And something clicked in your mind that said, I'm going to write a book. So what was the process that led up to that? Well, first of all, you know, I, I call the Detroit metro area home, but I'm, uh, I grew up a nomad. I was all over this country. So I got a taste of every bit of this place. Spent a lot of time in Florida, most of my time in Florida growing up. And then in my high school years, I uh, came back to Michigan after my parents divorced. So that's why I make this a home base. Plus, I married a Michigan girl. There you go. So nice. you go wherever the wife says you go. Right. That's why I'm here. Otherwise, I'd be in Key West or, you know, somewhere tropical. Well, what was your career before being a writer? Yeah, you know, I have a lot of jobs. Jobs, primarily worked in television and film. But before that, I was a cow hand on a ranch for a couple of years. Were you in naval intelligence for a while? Yes, I was in naval intelligence for four years during the end of the Cold War and the start of Desert Storm, the, the first of many wars we had in the Middle right. East. And that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that uh, that work. Yeah. yeah, that's my kind of job right there, man. Yeah, it wasn't something that I chose to do. When I joined the Navy, I wanted to be an electrician. And they said, no, you need to go into naval intelligence as a cryptologist. I had no idea what that was. Was that because you scored like real high on some kind of aptitude test? Yeah, Yeah. that's exactly what it was. Yeah. Oh, that's kind of an honor, though. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So that must have been fun, interesting. And I'd be willing to bet that some of those four years, the experiences that you aggregated found their way into your books and the characters of the books. Just, I'm guessing, I'm not saying, you know. No, you're dead right. Uh, My main character in the Leroy Cutter series, who just happens to be named Leroy Cutter, Amazing. But uh, he's former okay. naval intelligence. Yeah. Ah, see, I know you have some experience. You don't need a ton. Right. You have a good imagination. You could take just a few things from those four years and use it to create characters and happenstances and storylines. And so that's what you did, I'm sure. And that's what great writers do. That's build off of their personal experiences. So you traveled around, you ended up in movies and some TV and stuff like that. Did you have any like remarkable wins there or highlights in that career? Uh, You know, I went all over the world. That's a win. Yeah, I was all over the place. I was gone maybe 250 days out of the year just traveling, primarily in documentary filmmaking, a lot of sports TV as well, things of that nature. But I also had a young family. And, you know, when you're gone 250 days out of a year, you're missing a lot. So I stopped doing that and decided to concentrate on writing. But I picked up an executive producer gig for a post facility in the Detroit area. And so I did that for about five years and just kept on putting off the whole idea of writing anything. But during that time, I, you know, I, I wrote some screenplays, sold some screenplays. And I had a couple really bad movies made. And, you know, and then at the end of my contract, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to what I want to do this whole time. And that's right. And so I started right. writing books. And it's been great ever since then. I, I, I love doing it. I won't say it's a passion. My passion is doing nothing. That's what I'm passionate about. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you say like, oh, yeah, I sold some screenplays. People work their whole lives and never sell their screenplay right. and stuff. You know, how yeah. do you get this stuff done for so many people? That's a great question. I wish I had a great answer. The first screenplay I sold was a first draft of a horror film. And I just happened to be walking through a studio and ran into a producer that I know. And we were were just jawing. You know, I asked him what he's working on. That's what everybody asks. Hey, what are you working on? And uh, he said, you know, we're trying to find a horror film. You know, we want to do a horror film. And I said, oh, you know, I happen to, I wrote a screenplay, a horror film. I gave him the quick pitch. He said, let me read it. I said, ah, it's the first draft. It's not ready. He goes, nah, just let me read it. I said, nah, you know, it's, it's, it's not ready. 
He goes, I know, I know. Just let me read it. I said, okay, I, I'll send it over to you. I said, but listen, I'm going on vacation. I'll be back in two weeks. And he goes, all right. When I got back from vacation, I had 38 voice messages on my phone and uh, we had a deal. I sold a first draft of that script. Wow. And by doing so, by the way, because they were too cheap to pay for any rewrites, when you sell a first draft of a screenplay, you know what you get? You get a first draft of a movie. You know, it's not that good of a, it's not oh, that good no. of a movie. They didn't change it at all, huh? No, they made a couple of little tweaks there that, that, that didn't really work out. But uh, yeah, it, it didn't turn out well. So real quick, what was the general premise of the movie? Uh, it's very simple. A documentary film crew is following the exploits of a serial killer who's providing them with actual footage of his murders. It's a cat and mouse thing. They become his next yeah. victim and everything, being lured into the final trap. That's actually pretty cool. Ah, so it sounds like it could have yeah. been awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was. And this is before Saw and all those other type of movies. So it, it was a great premise. It was poorly executed when it when it got into film. Yeah. That's unfortunate because it does sound like it's a cool premise. So you you call Detroit home as where you kind of grew up, where you live. Where at in Detroit? In the suburbs, I'm assuming. I'm in the suburbs. I'm in the fifth largest township in Michigan, Waterford Township. Okay, in, I know Waterford. You guys are from over there. Yeah, yeah. we're just, just north of Pontiac. Yeah, yeah, I'm right next to Pontiac. Yeah, yeah. my wife's from Waterford. Yeah, you marry a Waterford girl, you end up in Waterford. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Anyway, so you come up with this concept for these books at some point. You're like, I'm going to create this concept. So tell us about your main character, and then what was the evolution of this story? Yeah, so Leroy Cutter is a former Detroit police officer, now turned private eye. And he's a private eye for the simple reason that he thought it would be easy work for easy money. Leroy's a lazy man. He wants to be a man of luxury and rest and do nothing. But the problem is, is that he's living off half a pension in a houseboat at the Detroit Yacht Club where he has trouble making the dock fees. So he's got to take the worst jobs possible. So is he a kind of a partier kind of guy or just kind of one of those guys who can't seem to get grounded? Well, no, he's a degenerate gambler and he likes his tequila. Let's, yeah. so I, I like him, Bill. <laughs> he's been watching too much Magnum P.I. Yeah, he's my kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, he spends a lot of time at, at the horse track, you know, with Hazel Park racetrack. Hazel Park. Which no longer exists, by the way. At the time when I was writing the I book, know. Hazel Park uh, racetrack was still there, but yeah. uh, they closed it down on Unfortunately, because that was my hot spot. I loved Hazel Park. I used to go in there all the time, bro. Are you kidding me, dude? All the bookies and the loan sharks hung out there, and I collected money for bookies and loan sharks. So I'd go up in there. The mob owned that place. They, oh yeah. For, originally, it was Tony Zarelli and Jack Tocos, but that's right. I think they put it into like an LLC, some private company, but it was still theirs. Everybody knew it. Yep. So I spent plenty of time there. One time, I brought a, a million seven in cash there. You know how scared I was, bro. And oh, I double bag. <laughs> Be Big hockey bag filled with cash. I was scared. So. You were perfectly safe, though, because the feds were filming it. They had you yeah, back. Yeah, exactly. The feds <laughs> were filming it. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's funny. It's a character in my book. He's a bookie and he makes his headquarters at the Hazel Park racetrack. No way. Really? Yeah. That's yeah. funny. That's, yeah. that's ironic. Yeah. But it makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Man, I tell you, I love that place. I really did. It, first of all, they had the best Italian sausages there and good cold beer. And you just sit up there yeah. in the stands and make your bets and have a great time. It was a fun place, man. And I, I, I yeah. really miss it. It was a fun place. It was. So tell us about the evolution of the story. So he starts off in Detroit. In the Yacht Club, which is funny. I know right where that is. And then tell us the main plot of book one and how he ends up in Florida. Sure, yeah. Uh, so in book one, he takes a case of a missing wealthy socialite. She's the heiress of a scrap metal empire in Detroit, yeah. and she goes missing. 
and her sister hires Cutter to find her. And again, Cutter is a lazy man. He really doesn't want to do it, but you know, he, he's got bills to pay. Money. And he also yeah. owes some money to the bookies because otherwise they're going to send a guy like you down there to, you know, break some knuckles. <laughs> So he takes this case because he thinks it'll be easy money. It's a college girl. She's probably out partying or whatever. Well, it turns into something much bigger involving political scandal, police corruption, drugs, gangs, and sexual deviance and all this kind of stuff. And he's getting in too deep. And he ends up listening to the help of the mob. Go figure. Yeah, to, to help him get out of the situation. So when it all ends for him, he's pretty much burned every bridge he's ever had in in Detroit. And he decides to head to Florida for some R&R with an old Navy buddy that he was with. And when he gets to Florida, to Key West, uh, there's a murder and he becomes suspect number one. And so he has to clear his name and find the real killer at the same time. So when he goes to Key West, that's book two, right? That's book two. Yeah. Bill, this is one of those guys I can tell right away. Like when we met DePaulo, I could tell he was a great writer. This is a guy I can tell his his imagination works in that way. Just hearing that right now tells me all I need to know. This is a good story. You know, his character is just kind of funny, lazy, over drinking, over gambling kind of party guy. This is a guy we all want to hang out with, Bill. <laughs> but <laughs> That's you know, he, Yeah, you want to hang out with him. Plus, it's quintessential with yeah. Detroit. That's exactly what you're going to fall into, step by yeah, step by yeah, step. Exactly. Quintessential Detroit. That's perfect, man. So where did you draw inspiration from just for this character? Was Did you create a character you kind of thought, I would like to be this character, even though he's kind of screwed up and got all these issues. He's also very witty and probably charming and a ladies man and you know kind of a tough guy and all that right well i tell you what, what i wanted to do you know i read a lot of books and if you're going to write you got to read a lot too yeah. and i read some good books that take place in detroit and some good thrillers and such but what i really wanted to see which i didn't see in these other books is i wanted to have a black main character who isn't you're stereotypical, but he's also not on this pedestal where he's, you know, he's perfect in every way or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's just he's just a real guy. You know, that, yeah, you have to have. Him yeah. And so there's a little bit of me in Leroy, but there's a lot of other people in Leroy, too. It, Leroy's yeah. a guy that I would love to hang out with until I got tired right. of hanging out with him. That's it's the type of guy. He is. Yeah. <laughs> Bill, you know anything <laughs> about guys like that, Bill? <laughs> I'm that guy. <laughs> yeah, Bill's that guy. That's Bill's that guy. And he's not something that I would get sick of. I don't think I'd ever get sick of Bill. I'd be that one friend who's just like, bro, like I can't get enough of you. But I could see like it, he would be the guy that some people would like, all right, enough of Bill's <laughs> enough. Because he's got a remarkable life. Like Bill is Leroy. Like he's like, could be your character. I'm telling you guys live the most remarkable. (laughs) Yeah. And and I would bring trouble anywhere I go. Like many times I'd show up at someone's house invited and their girlfriend's like, well, he's not coming in. (laughs) (laughs) And then he's at the door. He's like, just give me five minutes. It's cool. No, it's cool. It's cool. Just give me five minutes. (laughs) That's you know what? You're right. That's Leroy right there. Wherever he goes, trouble (laughs) follows him. And he's the guy that that you hate to love and that you hate to hate. But everybody in his life at some point has got to cut him loose because he's just he's trouble. He's trouble. And he doesn't want to be trouble. That's the thing. He doesn't want to be, yeah. but he can't help himself. Yeah, that's Bill. It's me. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, and, and even me, I'm the same way. Like I loved people and I always loved everybody, but I couldn't go into my friend's houses too. Like the mother said, I'm not allowed in the house because he thought I was a ticking time bomb. So I thought I was this likable guy that everybody liked, but there were a lot of people like, dude, you're too wild, man. You're that crazy. So I, I, I get that kind of character. That is the allure to your book, in my opinion, is this character that is kind of flawed, lovable, but loathable at the same time. And, uh, gets himself in all kinds of situations. Yeah, I mean, you know, people aren't one-dimensional. I mean, there are many sides to everybody. Yeah. Uh, there's nobody out there who's a complete evil or, uh, you know, complete good or whatever. It's a mixture, Angel. man. And and it all depends on your circumstances sure. and really about your reasoning capabilities, too. If you're incapable of controlling your emotions, people are going to see that bad side a lot more. You know, if you put yourself yeah. in circumstances where the bad side's got to come out just so you can survive, People are going to see that bad side, but people closest to you, they see the good side also, and, and they don't understand. Right. Yeah, and that's just people. And it's like the city of Detroit, to be honest with you, because the, the city of Detroit plays a huge part in this book. It's a character in itself in the first book, which is called The Sinful. I tell everybody, I love Detroit and I hate Detroit. Me too, bro. Me too. And there's just no way around it. You know, it's a city that it is rich in history and culture and the people. And then they got the other side which, you know, they tear down everything. They put their thumb down on everyone. There's corruption. There's, you know, the violence. violence. Yeah, it's uh, when I was in high school, when I was 16, a bunch of my buddies and I, we drove down to Detroit. We got pulled over by the police and they robbed us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got pulled over by the gang squad. There was four of us in the car. They got us out, lined us up. We all had the right. gold chains on. You know, this is the 80s, guys. <laughs> the gold chains. And a guy walked up and he ripped all the gold chains right off our necks and said, get out of here. And that was it. And I was like, we just got rolled by the cops. By the cops, bro. <laughs> Crazy. Detroit is a wild, wild place, man. Yeah, it is. It's a lot different than it was back in that days. Now, it's a, it's a lot different city than it was back in the 80s and the, and the early 90s. That's for sure. Well, in some ways, it's cleaned up a lot. In some ways, it's maybe worse. I, I can remember you wouldn't go down the Cass Corridor unless you were willing to take your life in your hands. Yeah, I did. Now you take a stroll to hit the art museums yeah. and the restaurants. Yeah. Downtown is beautiful. I was shooting a, a show, a YouTube channel a couple months ago. I could not believe they tore down so many houses and now they're building newer yeah. houses. But the problem is you got a street that's got a bunch of new houses that mixed in with them are like the dilapidated old crack yep. houses still. So it's like, why would you build a house next to an old crack house? Because it's going to you know, bring the value of your property down. Nobody's going to buy that house. It's just crazy. Man. And that's the hate side of Detroit. The city's schizophrenic. It really is. It's almost like they don't know what they want, but they want it all. So they're going to try everything. Well, it's like the guy that buys that house. He's like, I want nice things, but I also don't want to walk very far to get my crack. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It's perfect. If you're a crackhead, you can walk next door. Well, that guy's just being <laughs> yeah, practical. It's crazy. Crazy. But anyways, so back to your book. How many books are in this series? There's two right now. I got six that are planned, and I'm working on the third one right oh, now. Cool. Two were released this year. The first one, uh, The Sinful, was released in January of 23. Uh, debuted in the top 10 on Amazon. Nice. Still doing really well. And then Into the Marrow, which is the second book, came out in November this year. And it's picking up some good steam. Also, uh, The Sinful was number two in the UK, of all places. It was the number two oh, book nice. in the UK. I couldn't believe it. So what is the genre? Like, what genre? Is it listed on? Yeah, hard boiled detective, mystery and suspense, 
and thrillers and crime fiction. So that's a tough genre, man. If you can get in, it's the, a huge nut to crack. Yeah, that's a huge nut to crack. You get in the top of that, man. You're doing yep. something, bro. That's that's serious. But there's a lot of great series, detective series. But I like what you did. You kind of took a broken black dude and made him this funny and interesting character, which is cool. It's not cliche. It's different. You know, I like that. Yeah. You know, I, I get some comparison. And with, by all means, I am not making this comparison. This is just what people have said to me that read the book and stuff that it's a lot like Elmore Leonard's books. Nelson DeMille books, the John Corey series, yeah, things like that. And I said, hey, I'll take it, you know, absolutely. You know, those are giants uh, in the thriller genre, and I'll be happy to shoot them down if I can. That's awesome. I can't wait to dig in. So what's next? What's going to happen next? He's leaving. After he leaves Florida? Yeah. He has to come back home to testify in a case from book one. And while he's here, of course, wherever Leroy goes, trouble finds him. He gets caught up in a series of cases that involves his brother, who is a pastor of a mega church in Detroit. He gets rolled up in a case. His brother is in big trouble. And so Leroy has to help his brother. And at the same time, unbeknownst to him, he's also helping some county detectives in Oakland County with a series of murders that are happening. They're all kind of tied there. And you know what? You're getting an exclusive here. I'm going to tell you what the title of the third book is. Nobody knows what it is. Not even my wife. I'm going to let it out right here on on the show. Oh, right here. You're here to hear first, people. Yep. The title of the third book in the Leroy Cutter series is Sons of Men. Sons of Men. It's a very dark book. The first book, The Sinful, is a pretty dark book, too. The second one's a, a little bit lighter, much more adventurous and uh, more of a, a mystery type whodunit. It's a fun book. It's a book that when you put down, you go, that was a fun book. The Sinful, when you put it down, you go, holy smokes. Damn. Sons of Men, they're going to do the same thing. So love interest. I'm assuming he has some kind of love interest. Leroy has many love interests. They never work out. Is there one particular that he's really... There is one. It's a woman that he used to work with, the Detroit PD. She's still there. Her name's Leah Williams. He loves her. Yeah. Uh, they had a thing going on, but you know he likes to sabotage himself right. and his own relationships. And she loves Leroy too, but she doesn't want anything to do with him. That's the thing that he's always trying to get back yeah. without trying. You know what I mean? Every great story has to have some kind of romantic dichotomy. A great writer is always going to have that one love interest. May not work out, but he loves her. She loves him. It's he love hate, whatever it is. Yeah, they're completely wrong for each other. I mean, completely wrong for each other. Yeah, because I figure a lazy pi can't stay away from the hookers. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, Cutter likes to have a little fun, man. He he gets around. You know, when he gets to Key West, the first thing he does is he hooks up with a barmaid. <laughs> so you know, yeah. oh, he's been at sea nice. for a while. He sailed to Florida, by the way. He, he oh, really? He went down the coast. Yep, went down the coast. Well, Gary, listen, I look forward to reading your book. I know Bill's going to do it. Is yeah. your book on Audible, by the way? Uh, the Sinful's on Audible. Yeah, so there is an Audible book for the first one, and the second one there will be one coming out. Uh, I'm going to say maybe February, or March next year is when the audio book for Into the Marrow comes out. Well, listen, tell everybody where they can find you, the books, and name them off one more time and where they can find you. Do you have a website? Yeah. So my website is really easy, gwallison.com, which is my name. Allison with two L's? Yeah, two L's. Yep. And on there's links to where you can get the books. Of course, it's on Amazon, eBay. They're sold wherever books are sold. And as always, if you go to our podcast show on the archives, I'll have the notes of everywhere you can get his stuff. There you go. It is carried by Barnes & Noble in the bookstores. Uh, the second book is. The first book isn't. I mean, I always tell people, you know, they're like, oh, I like to go to a bookstore. And I said, well, if you don't find the book there, then tell them to order it and they'll, and they'll send yeah, it to you. And they will. I like that book to come in the mail. I do too. Yeah, it's the treat. Yeah. So the first book is The Sinful. 
Second book is Into the Marrow. Third book should be coming out sometime next year. I don't I don't have a date yet. Leroy Cutter. Leroy Cutter series. Leroy Cutter. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into these. This is yeah, going to be good. I'm sure this is good stuff. So everybody make sure to check it out. That was great, guys. A lot of fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bill, I think we have to take a quick break. Stay tuned on 1010 The King. It's our thing. Writing a book can be fulfilling and rewarding, but often the biggest challenge is getting it published. Yet, self-publishing for print, ebook, and audiobook can be a daunting process, and then you have to market and sell it. White Pine Publishing and Consultants can help you with all of that and more. We're not a traditional publisher. We're a consulting and services company that assists you with all aspects of self-publishing your book, including ghostwriting, coaching, editing, proofing, formatting, marketing and sales, and even web design. Visit our website at whitepinepublishing.com to learn more about our services and get in touch. With White Pine's integrity, industry knowledge, and experience, you can let us do all the hard work so that you don't have to. Check out all of our self-publishing services, pricing, and author testimonials at whitepinepublishing.com. What's up? Welcome back to our thing on 1010 The King. And now I'd like to welcome to the show my final guest of the evening, Cy Young. And when I say Cy Young, he's an author, not the baseball player. Don't be confused. Thank you. Yeah, I need that. I have every time I get on an I have that problem. And so I have to say author first. Yes, yes. We don't want to. Get Are you through. telling me I put on a clean undershirt for nothing? <laughs> right. <laughs> Cy Young, if anyone who doesn't know, is a very famous baseball player. And there's an award named after him, the Cy Young Award. Anyways, not the same guy. But I wish I used a pseudonym because it's a problem for me if I want to get something on the internet. It always goes to Cy Young, the baseball player. So what I have to do is just say, hey, uh, this is Cy Young, the author, and this is my name, this is my email, et cetera. So it's okay. So it works okay. I mean, it's a blessing and a curse. I guess it could work to your advantage, but it could work against you at the same time. It's a blessing. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> blessing. Yeah, it's a blessing. What I want to know first is to the audience who doesn't know you, I want them to know a little about you, where you're from, where you grew up, uh, what your career choice was, and then what led you down the path to write this series, this book series. And it's a really interesting series of great characters. And like this is right up my alley, so we'll get into it in a minute. But tell them about yourself. Okay, I was brought up in Kansas City, and the, my introduction to the theater and stuff was I started playing the trumpet. It started very young. I was about 10. And I got to be pretty good, and I was on a couple of shows there, and I would play around. We had a theater, you know, we'd play films, and then they'd cut the film off, and people would do a, a little presentation of their performance. And so I got started there with the trumpet. And I was on some international stuff with that. But then when I got to Chicago and I went to Northwestern, I moved down into the Loop, which is East Chicago. And I got involved there with performing at the nightclub. Chicago was really great for me. Some very good studying there, people with the trumpet and with the dancing and everything else. And I started auditioning and I, I got a job in the Empire Room in the Palmer House, working with the Merrill Abbott dancers. I got that and we, we went from Chicago to Los Angeles. Was that your career path? Like, you know, performing live performance music? Yeah, yeah, I was starting performing. I wasn't writing yet. And, uh, but my first professional job was in Chicago with this group. And then we opened the Beverly Hilton Hotel, August the 12th, 1955. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I go back, I'm a leap year baby. <laughs> 22 and a half years old. And I went back to Chicago, I performed in probably with the Palmer House, dancing. Until a touring company, a pajama game, came to town, and I joined the show there, dancing the famous Steve Heat number. 
and I was out on the road for a year. It was really a, a great experience for me. And my first job, and then I got to New York right after that. And my first job in there was dancing with Steam Heat Number at City Center. And that was pretty big just to come in and just start, you know, and dancing right away. And when that production closed, I started working in a famous club called the Upstairs and the Downstairs. And everybody in New York came to see that show. I was there for about four years with it. Right then came there with her then husband, Ellie Gould, and Carol Burnett. I got to know these people. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So you had a song on a Streisand album, right? Yes. Yeah, at one point, Streisand was the auditioning writers in New York. So she had a bunch of us, about 15 of us in a room there, and we all would sit down and play our little song. And I sat down, I played a couple of songs for her, and I said, I did this little thing called Draw Me a Circle. And I finished it, and she said, I love that song. And she said, I'll have my manager get in touch with you. Her manager was Marty Ehrlichman, a really nice guy. And he got in touch with me eventually, a little later than I would have liked, because I had had the song published. And I was hoping that, you know, we would publish it with Streisand. But I was not sure that they were going to do it. But they finally did do it. And they also used it as the opening one of their specials. And uh, that was really terrific. And in fact, you know what? I just called Marty Earler. He's 94. <laughs> and I said, you know, I got a song from Barbara. Is she still singing? He said, yeah, she's still recording at 80. But I haven't heard anything from him. So. But getting back to New York at that point, uh, Carol Burnett also came to see the show at the upstairs, the downstairs in the 60s. And after, after the show, she came up and said, fine, I love you. Everything that you did. Give me a call. She gave me her number. And guess what? I never called her like an idiot. <laughs> oh, my. Kidding. I thought you were going to say you slept with her. Yeah, no, no, I didn't. I didn't. The greatest story of your life, man. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that uh, that was really interesting. And uh, so I got that all organized. And then I just worked a lot in New York. This has got to be one of the best backstories we've ever yeah. had. <laughs> wow. And you didn't call. What a mistake. Well, that's true, but I still worked in the lot in the business, you know, so I wasn't totally a stupid guy. But anyway, and I worked with Buster Keaton on the show. Yeah, it was Once Upon a Mattress, right? You played opposite Buster Keaton. Once Upon a Mattress, that's right, yeah. Yeah, and he played the king and I played his son. And uh, boy, it was just so great working with him. He was really great. He did a little trick on me when we got to California. We did the show, and I came back afterwards up to his dressing room. He said, I wanted to show you something. So I go to his dressing room, and there's this gorgeous woman. This woman, I'm talking to her. And suddenly I hear a voice behind me. I look around and, and she's back there. I said, wait a minute. It was, she had, there were twins. <laughs> so there were you know, one, one beautiful woman, another beautiful woman. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. Now we go. Yeah. Anyway, that was Buster's little trick. Oh, by the way, uh, do you want to know about my books or do you want me to keep talking about my performance and stuff? No, no, no. We're going to get into your books. We're going to get into your okay. books. So you were working in the performing arts you know, yeah, for years. Right. It's a big deal in New York City, L.A., Hollywood, all this stuff. You met all these people. Very cool. Yeah. And I uh, during kind of the golden era of those, some of those truly amazing celebrities. But then what led you down the path to discover writing? Like, where, where did you take that from? Well, let me back up a little bit. One of the people I worked with was a guy named Fred Ebb. Fred had seen me perform, and he loved my work. But anyway, Fred happened to be the guy who wrote uh, New York, New York. He wrote the musical Chicago, and he was a very close friend. And uh, I, I really appreciate working with him. It was it was great. Okay, well, I started writing songs when I was in high school, but I didn't really get serious until I got to New York. And uh, BMI, there was a guy named Lehman Engel, who was one of the top conductors of Broadway shows. And they put him in charge of the section where they were teaching writers. This is BMI. Now, ASCAP was already doing this. 
But BMI still wanted to start in competition with ASCAP. So they got Lehman Engel, and they started having this class of, of how to write, how to write for the theater. And he started doing that, and I started doing it, and um, I had a real knack for it. And I think Lehman really liked me, and I kind of became his guy. And I wrote a show that he was going to direct. It ended up that he didn't direct it. Unfortunately, he should have. But anyway, I really got into it. And Draw Me a Circle was part of that show at the end of the show. So that's one of the way I got into it. Then I started writing musicals. I wrote a bunch of musicals, and I got them produced. And they're off-Broadway musicals. I loved the musical theater. But then I also started writing plays. So I got I played the Samuel Print in a year, and they published it. And then I got two more done. So I had three plays published by Samuel French. And then I had a short story that finally got published and won an award in uh, Oklahoma City for the best short story. And uh, then I started writing screenplays. I wrote about a dozen screenplays, and I got half of those were optioned. None, none of them were performed, never performed, but they could have been, but uh, something, you know, never, never came to fruition. So anyway, I had all that, and then I was still writing songs. So it all kind of mixed together, and I just loved the idea of writing. I also write, wrote some uh, experimental stuff like a pantoum, which is a very difficult <laughs> kind of form you have to write. You have to, it, it's very difficult. But anyway, I just wanted to do, you know, write, write different things. And So I got to the point where I was writing the songs, and there's when you write a song, there's the basic form is A, B, A, A, B, A, A. You know, and you go back, you do A, A, then a B, and the release, and then the A. And then I started writing, getting away from that to A, B, A, A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, 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 C. They got very complicated, and which was really interesting, but they're really beautiful and they have really interesting development. So they're not really in Broadway musical, but a lot of the songs are, in fact, an addition, an elongation of that concept. So that's basically how I got into everything. I found out about self-publishing. And boy, I thought, gee, this is, this is great because I'm so sick of waiting for these people in the uh, publishing field. Yeah, you can take it in your own hands now. Yeah, yeah you're darn yeah. right. You're darn right. All right. So where's the conception of this book series? Like, it's got an interesting character and an interesting plot. And it's very unique, which I, I appreciate and like, especially. So at what point were you sitting by the computer in front of the computer or writing with a pen, whatever, and you just began to conceptualize this story that would evolve into this series and kind of tell us where it started and where it went and tell us about these characters in this book series. Okay. My lead character is Frankie Scarmazino. He's the kicker. He's a dago. He's paisan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> His character is based on an alpha male. A Hall of Fame wrestler who just happened to live on my floor in 408 West 57th in New York City. And this is Jack Reacher Squared. The guy who lived there, his name was uh, Antonino Rocca. And I don't know if anybody knows who he is, but he was in the Hall of Fame. He was a great, great wrestler. He also worked for uh, in other areas. He tested planes for the Air Force. And I think he worked with some of the uh, other groups there, the intelligence agencies. And there's a story about Tony, which I, I tell sometimes. He told me these stories specifically. He was wrestling at the end of World War II. And he said, there's a wrestler, a Japanese wrestler in 1947 who was touring the United States. And he was really mad because his country had been devastated by the war. And so he would book these wrestling matches with these American wrestlers and practically kill them. So Tony said, he, you know, he wanted to get a match with him. And his manager didn't want him to, but he did. So he got this match with this guy. And he said he was sorry. He was really strong. I said, at one point, I thought he was going to kill me. But I said, I got through it, and I had to kill him. Otherwise, he would have killed me. 
And I said, oh, you know, that's great. It's interesting, this little point that he brought up to me, because he had talked to me about other things that he had done, and I could never find anything on the Internet about that death. Yeah, he's saying he legit killed him. That's not a manner of speaking. Yeah, no, he really, he, he had to kill him. And uh, I found out a couple of weeks ago, someone told me that he'd heard about another guy who said, hey, I heard that Tony had to kill this guy. And that's the only other thing I've ever heard. So I'm saying to anybody out there who knew about Anthony Naraka, if you ever heard about that, get in touch with me on my internet. You know, I'd like to verify that as a reality. So this is the guy that inspired the creation of the main character in your book? Yeah, yeah. He was a, he was a great, great lead guy. He was just very strong and very powerful. And I just love yeah. that. Old school alpha male, this badass. This is the golden age of true masculinity in men. There you go. There you go. Did you watch the Dallas game last week when they played the Eagles? No, I did not. There was a kicker there. He got a 50-yard field goal. And a 49-yard field goal, which had never happened before. This guy was great. And that's kind of my guy. That's my guy, Tony. So he doesn't stay in the NFL that long. Kind of take us through this guy's life and how he becomes this character. Doesn't he become like a PI, a private investigator or something? He does become a private investigator. Yeah, and you know what? It's interesting. I've written about four or five different books about his childhood. When he was a little kid at four, when he was six, when he was at 10, the first fight he had with a, with a bully. And I've got these little books. I'm selling them on the side, you know, which are really good because they give you an insight yeah. into this guy and how he grew up and how he was a genius. He is a genius. And that can be a very negative thing because people always want to knock you down, you know, if you're a genius. Oh, trust me, I know. Yeah, yeah. You, are you a genius? <laughs> no, but I'm pretty smart. But my IQ is very high. Yes. Well, there you go. Well, you're the top peach on the tree and they want to knock that peach off. <laughs> Yeah, especially if you're an assertive, kind of masculine alpha on top of being abnormally smart. I didn't fit in anywhere, right? So I imagine your character is probably similar. Nobody seemed to understand him. You know, nobody really got him. People thought he was weird. He's the same way, yeah. Exactly right. Because you're so smart that nobody knows what you're talking about. And it's a problem. When I was young, they put me in his classes for special kids. But small class, yeah. like 10 students, and they were all weirdos. They were all all the freaks, you know, because I kept getting distracted. So they put me in this class with these freaks. You know, that doesn't sound like the smart kid class. <laughs> right. But it was. That's the thing. It was the smart kid yeah. class. But I didn't realize it. I just thought it was like the weird kid class. <laughs> but, I, but I just, that's what I thought it was. They gotcha. took me out of there because I just didn't get along with anybody and I didn't fit in. So they put me back in the regular classes. But, but anyway, I'm sure your character had the same thing. Well, let me just mention also that when he was like seven or eight years old, his little sister was kidnapped and brutally murdered by a guy. Uh. And it was a big motivation in him wanting to solve crimes. So he became the uh, private eye. In his spare time, that was one of the things that was always on his mind. He wanted to try to find this guy. And in book four, he does find him. He's in a monastery in Switzerland. But uh, you want to hear about the book one and book two and book three and what, what they're about or what? Well, if you could give a kind of brief synopsis of each one of them, and we have so much time. But tell us a little about you know, each one briefly. Okay, let me just tell you. Book one is he's the uh, best kicker in the NFL. And this is the one called Kicker, right? Yeah, it's called Kicker, yeah. They're, they're all called Kicker, yeah. Isn't he a bit of like a drinker and carouser, too? See, he's a very serious brain when he trains. He doesn't mess around much because he wants to be the best. And to do that, he knows he can't drink and he can't carouse. So he really focuses, he uses his brilliance to focus his performing in terms of kicking. And he's able to understand that he needs to broaden himself. 
and that's why he gets into the private eye. But uh, going back to Frankie, the first game he's injured, and he takes a hit, and he's got to go he dies to his death for Arkansas to investigate the death of his brother, one of his buddies. And so he experiences that, and that, that gets him kicked off in that situation. And there's some really interesting characters in that situation, too. I based one of them on my wife, who was a real powerhouse. She was very sexy and very smart, and she was on a soap opera for four years, uh, Love as Many Splendor thing. So I try to base my characters on real characters, and uh, that really makes a big difference because you have somebody to sure. write on. Oh, you know what? I want to read a prologue to you in book two, okay? Sure. This is book two of the series. And this is the one where he has to go to Hamburg and he gets waylaid on the bridge. And I said, draw two guys. Okay. This is the prologue. These were shoes to kill for. These Italian beauties are the kind of shoes very few could ever afford. One pair, men's size, 12 wide, 15 alligator with extremely soft leather, exotic, brown, flexible, and comfortable. $12,000. These Berluti men's Venezia Bernice single monk slip-ons with the cursive galet formation contoured the owner's foot as smoothly as a glove. These shoes had recently moved with grace down the royal carpet to the Queen of England's throne. Trod on the exquisite purified feet placed with holy fervor on the floor of the palace of the approach to the Shah of Serbia's benign presence. And finally, worn to an exalted audience when greeting the most powerful, the wealthiest, the most dangerous leader of the top-reigning cartel in the world. These high-priced foot encasements were currently on display for a short time in their owner's wine cellar. In the center of the lavish cellar enclosure sat three barrels that stored the three most rare and expensive wines in existence. The first barrel held a 1992 Screaming Eagle Cabernet. The second barrel contained the Jérôme of Chateau Mouton, Rothschild 1945. And the third barrel was privileged to hold the final and rarest of all, the 1947 Chateau Coval Blanc, from which protruded the inverted upper half of the owner's body, rising from the priceless grapes, shoes still neatly in place, Lace is perfectly tied. A final tribute to the folly of ostentation. I like it. So somebody ends up dead in a barrel of wine wearing a $12,000 pair of shoes. <laughs> yeah, he pissed off a cartel. Yeah. I love that you said the barrel was privileged to hold the wine. I get that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's well said. Yeah. In this book, too, Frankie has to solve why Indian children are being kidnapped and trafficked and how a World War II POW who escaped from a prison camp in New Mexico 1945 may be involved. So we pull that in. That's a very interesting concept. I like it. I like that you have these interesting characters that are larger than life, alpha males who solve the crimes or badasses. They get it done. They kick ass, take no names. I like stories like that. I write stories like that. And I like stories like that because it allows readers like myself to kind of disengage from reality and kind of put myself in the shoes of these characters like you create. You know, Gunnar, the quality of the characters, I think, make the book. Of course. And that's why I think that you have to be really sharp in terms of getting the right character, developing that character, and interacting that character with others to help push that uh, character into his uh, things that happen to him and, and force him to do things. For instance, the, the first lady that he's involved with, the only sex I have in, in my three books of Kicker are in the first book. And that's where he meets this Mira Strickland, 
who is a powerhouse lawyer, and she takes in battered women. She's a sensible knockout. She has a tongue that should be registered as a deadly weapon because she's so sharp. And she'll just annihilate these guys who are idiots. But she still has the warmth of the heart that appreciates innocence and she and Frankie Bond. And guess who I, I, I based her on? My wife, Jane Manning, because she was that woman. She was a powerhouse. Then I got a guy named Hawk Maggard. He's got three tours in Nam. He brought back a necklace of Viet Cong ears. He owns over 30 guns. He's a loner, lives alone in the woods with three TPs. I like this guy's imagination, Bill. You know what I'm saying? Well, listen, we want everybody to buy and read your book. So why don't you tell us where they can find your books, get the names of the books again, and it could go on all night, but we only have so much time. But I do like these type of stories, these characters. I mean, this is right up my alley type of yeah. stories. you got a great imagination, and it sounds like all your life you've had these characters and stories locked and loaded. Right, that's the thing. He's led an extraordinary life himself. So, yeah, you can imagine. That lends to it. You know, what his mind can yeah. come up with, yeah. But he's not a normal guy himself, yeah. <laughs> so what he can create is on right. the next level. Yeah, I'll tell you, the first one is called Going the Distance. It's basically about domestic abuse. The second one is called is Clearing the High Bar, and it's about human trafficking, mostly with Indian kids. And the third book is called Closing the Circuit, is Terrorism of the Electric Grid. The regular price of the first book is 99 cents right now, and the second book is about 99 The third book is 2 as a special bundle temporarily for us if you wanted to get all three of them at three ninety nine. So these are ebooks? That's ebooks. Those are ebooks, yeah. Right, but you can get kicker in like paperback and hardback? Absolutely. Yeah, you can get them in paperback and uh, however you want them. Do you have a website? Yeah, my website is cyyoungbooks.com. And if you go into it, it's the right author, Cy Young and the cyyoungbooks.com author, because Otherwise, they might go to Cy Young, the baseball player. Right. But anyway, yeah, you can you go to my website. And I've got all my songs on there. I've got my all my books, everything I've got on there, my plays. And it's just it's just a fund of all kinds of good stuff that I've had uh, for my whole life on there. So it is a great stuff. I went in uh, when I researched you. I went to your website, obviously. Oh, did you help Bill? And it's got like his books, short yeah. stories, plays, screenplays, musicals, uh, Amazon, Audible. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I subscribe to your newsletter, too, and I got everything now. Well, you know what I'm talking about. Hey, that's great. I'm glad you did. So and you were getting you were able to get in. OK, without any problem. Not a problem. I found you no problem. Oh, that's great. OK. I hope everybody goes there to his website and checks out his books. I mean, I think there's probably something for everybody there. And as always, if you go to our archive episodes in the show notes, I'll have links to all his stuff and make it real easy. Cy, listen, you are a pleasure. We could talk all night. I wish we had more time, but I hope everybody checks out your books and sees who you are. Interesting guy, interesting character with a great imagination. Sounds like you wrote some great books. I think they're worth checking out 100%. Keep up the good work, man. Keep doing what you do. We appreciate you. Okay. You too, buddy. And Bill, it's nice meeting you and talking to you. Yes, sir. We'll keep in touch for sure. I'm going to check out your books. Okay, babe. Thank you on. Okay. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, I think that'll do it. And that's another one in the books for our thing on 1010 The King. Make sure to tune in next Friday. Until then, drive safe. Have a good week. God bless. And we out.